Welcome to episode five of the Radical Narrative Podcast. I'm your host, Mylon Tatusis, coming at you from rural Saskatchewan, Treaty 6 Territory. I want to give another shout out to all our followers and those who are subscribing and listening to our podcast. Thank you so much for sharing our work. And also to our new listeners, welcome to the Radical Narrative family. Today I'm sitting down with Dr. Katie Kamela Mela, based out of the Kingdom of Hawaii. Join us as we talk about land-based projects, Hawaiian lands and history, organizing in the time of COVID-19, new tech language tools, and ultimately, we plan to deconstruct some of those tourist assumptions we have of Hawaii. So stay tuned and listen in. Thanks for sitting with me. Uh, we go way back. You're you're basically my sister. I call you my sister because we've been in a certain academic style together for a while, talking story, touching base with each other. Um, but the audience doesn't know who you are. So who are you and where do you come from? Hi, my name is Katie Kamalamela. I'm talking story with Mylan from Mountain View on Hawaii Island, before known as Kapu'e Uhi. Um, I'm born and raised on Oahu, which is a different island where Honolulu is, um, in Eva, Eva Beach, Waimalu, and I went to school at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Got my undergrad in botany and Hawaiian studies and my master's and PhD in botany, mostly working with forest gathering practices, native Hawaiian gathering practices, and doing a lot of work with Native Hawaiian communities, mainly through primarily volunteering before doing any research. Um, not with that intent, it just kind of happened like that. And I have two dogs that are really cute and a fish named Honey. Cool. I'm, I'm like trying to think about the first time I met you, Mylan, and you brought up the memory of Waikane. Yeah. I just threw you guys in the back of my truck and we we're off. Yeah, so we met technically through academia. We met through the University of Hawaii Indigenous Politics program and my Indigenous Governance program at UVic. We had an exchange. And uh, the first time I met you, I think we had class or something, like some formal orientation and things like that. And then all of a sudden you pulled up in truck and you're all like, jump in, let's go eat. And the sun was already down. And I remember jumping in the back of your little truck and we were just cruising on the highway me in the back of a truck with a few other classmates and you took us to Waikane and uh, we went to the Waiholi Poi factory after hours. It's pretty famous normally, but you got us like, <laughs> the, you got us like the back, the back door pass and we were sitting there and eating some good food with good people. That was my first relationship with Hawaii. And a lot of people can't say that. So I, I always appreciated you doing that for me when we first met. Yeah. I think we were, we had like a music night that night and I was like, Oh yeah, it'd be cool. Yeah. So yeah, it was good. Um, I don't live on that island anymore, so it's just good memories. And um, being on Hawaii Island, it's a lot different. It's really country. Um, like I live 40 minutes out of what would be our city area, which isn't really considered a city. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in politics was uh, we went up to Canada, did the whole salmon thing. Um, I'd never eaten salmon um, really before that and didn't understand that relationship from mm -hmm. that area. So that was cool to see. And, uh, making, I did a pit cook because my master's was about underground emu, um, in Hawaii or underground ovens. Yeah. Looking at contemporary or how people practice, uh, underground ovens today. And so I did one with Cheryl Bryce. Um, yeah, so that was good fun. Yeah, that was that was character building experiences, man. Yeah, I was just doing my master's, so I was still like young to the whole academic game. But we've been through a lot. Like, you're actually a doctor now. You so you finished your PhD. I'm still going slow. I'm the snail snail of the department. I always say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, bro, it's not a race with anybody else, man. Yeah, getting getting the PhD was an experience, especially that last year. It was really making the decision that, like, am I going to do this? And then just, like, continuing on with that decision. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got some questions to ask you about PhD life and academia. But first, what I really want to get into, firstly, is uh, we have listeners who 
like you're, you're making references to Waikane, you're making reference to Oahu, and now you're on Big Island and things like that. A lot of people don't, like on the mainland, and we do have international listeners now, like a lot of people don't really understand how unique Hawaii is because they're basically just seeing it through media portrayals or through like the tourist industry. So in your own words, like how do you describe your landscape to somebody who's never experienced it? Because there is like this image of, of your territory and your land base and water base that's really romanticized. When I was younger, my mom went to New York. I think I was like 12 and she came back and she went to like, you know, the um, Statue of Liberty and she had to go for business which wasn't a normal thing. And when she came back, I was like, what was it, mom? And um, and I've experienced this too. So when I come back home from anywhere, it's just like technicolor coming back home. And that doesn't really make any sense anymore now that we have like high definition. But I guess it would be like high definition is what it is when you come to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Like there's just so much clarity. You can go um, on the continents of the United States like for hours, yeah. seeing the same flat. Um, but in Hawaii, because of the age of our islands, mm-hmm. is very expansive in a small area. We have lowlands. We have the most diverse like environment, kind of on the planet. From alpines, like we just got a snow dusting on the mountain yesterday, down to the beach. You know, when people come to Hawaii, they expect like nice weather, twenty four hours a day, and 365 days a year and it's just not like that it's very variable because we are in the middle of the pacific like 2,000 miles away from any landmass like large landmass four hours on a plane from any direction from asia or north america or south america it's just we're very isolated and interdependent on our resources we just currently got shipping and i say currently right in like the 70s and the 60s in like the 60s we were um pretty sustainable still and then the industry like industry kicked in and then in the 80s and 90s now we're like 95 percent dependent on resources coming from the outside so like this whole covid thing like um is kind of a big deal um because if anything happens um we just open up to tourism and now our numbers are spiking again like really bad and so a lot of what is sold is like the sexualization and the pornographic nature and um separation from environment so people come here for vacation and like to get away but what they don't show you is like you know the traffic jams the houseless people on the beaches or in downtown or in Waikiki, the reality, it may be a different place, but, you know, going to New York, there's still similar situations. Like there's still like a town vibe or a city vibe. It's really interesting. Like even with the indigenous community, um, when we talk about cultural appropriation and um, even within our communities, because of the projection and the promotion of our cultures as sexualized natures, we also sometimes fetishize each other's cultures because that's just mm-hmm. what we have available. And so I think that's what happens with Native Hawaiians, um, more so yeah. because of the advertisement that we have about you know, hula skirts and coconut bras and all of that. But in my in my yeah. work in doing underground ovens, I did go to a luau, which I'd never gone to like a tourist luau before. So I wrote it off as like research, which is like kind of wild, right? Uh-huh. So I went to Jermaine's luau and I did the whole thing. Um, and come to find out that this is part of the reality that a lot of people, not even people in Hawaii know about, but a lot of those luau's are manned by generational families that keep their, um, traditions alive by doing those kind of luau's as well as holding their own family halals or schools of knowledge separately. And so that didn't come out till like years after me going to that luau. 
But I think that that's really something we don't talk about in our communities, how even when I went to New Zealand in Rotorua, which is known as Roto Vegas, because um, there's a lot of culture on display for commodification. But it's also one of the places that has the highest retention of Te Reo Maori or like their native language. Um, It's also a place known for um, cultural Mm -hmm. traditions um, and being steadfast in those traditions. And it's because of the tourism. So like there's like this really, really large range of tourism to native peoples being on the front line of tourism, being like, you know, the baggage claim, like my, some of my friends have been bag. Uh, oh, my uncle still is, you know, working at hotels and that being an opportunity for people to put food on their table as well as hold traditions but then, like, the opportunity cost, obviously, is the exchange of land and the pushing out of what was to cater to outside. Like, most of Waikiki is, like, I'm pretty sure, like, Fendi and, like, Louis Vuitton and these, like, really high-label um, retailers, which is, like, not what local people shop at. Um, so it's very catered towards, like, you can go to Waikiki and probably have the same experience in California. You're just paying for the flight. Um, especially if you just stay in Waikiki. So I think you guys coming out and, you know, you just came, like, I just came, like, I just invited you guys to come cruise with us. Um, and you kind of just saw a little bit part of like, like, that's my reality, you know, like I just invited you to see like, these are my friends and this is what we do. And we don't do this all the time, but, um, it just so happens that you guys were here and like, it's a good exchange, right? Because those guys also go and visit other indigenous peoples, like up in Barrow in Alaska or so it's this whole like indigenous network of people who are actively engaging, like seeking out um, or being asked or being sought out to be representatives for their community. Everyone is that has that um, opportunity and access, I would say, as long as, you know, just showing up is like the biggest thing. Yeah, just showing up and also being welcomed, right? Like being invited, not only being invited, but also being welcomed because there was like a welcoming aspect that that is really practiced in your culture also. Yeah, that is true. The vibe is really important. <laughs> yeah. The vibe um seeing people do the work in first what do they call it first impressions. Mm-hmm. First impressions are really really critical and really interesting in these times. Now we're all meeting each other on Twitter and Zoom yeah. and um these meetings that maybe wouldn't have been accessible so yeah it's it's really interesting with the opening up of tourism hawaii was on lockdown from tourism up until like i think just like a month ago so what you had was like six months of nobody on the beaches nobody on trails um or a highly reduced amount of people um in the environment and so what what we saw was um traditional seaweeds coming back, um, different fish coming around because Hanama Bay was closed, um, higher breeding rates of fish. These are all things that were being reported like in the news and in like our community networks and stuff like that, you know, actively observe our environment for resources. So now we're back to the status quo, not fully, but we're, you know, people are back on beaches jeeps and mustangs are back on the road Mm -hmm. more resources more people at the stores we see or we've seen with covid time for our resources to rest so now people are thinking like maybe we should do that more often wow yeah you you just like hit the nail on the head because one of the reasons i wanted to pod with you was because in my community not, not to discount people who want to travel and see the world but the experience some people have when they go to Hawaii isn't the experience I had. And there's a lot of social, political, and even economic issues. And you're just highlighting that in the first like 15 minutes of this conversation. I guarantee you a lot of people are hearing this for the first time, but then 
At the same time, a lot of people completely had that romantic notion of Hawaii. And just to hear you unpack this and, and, and lay it out in this way is, is amazing because that's exactly what I wanted you to talk about is, is even just how this land is being rejuvenated. Yeah, I think locals have been good at staying home. Um, there's also been a um, movement towards, um, I know there's like a group online that's cataloging all of the fish catches. Like, so fishermen are voluntarily signing on to this Facebook group. Uh, I think it's public or I, I don't know if it's public or private. I haven't been in for a while. Anyways, he asks, how much have you caught? You know, you can put a picture of your fish up. And then he also asks, how much people are you feeding and where did you get it from? Mm -hmm. So every month he compiles it. And so I think that's really great practice. You know, like it's buy-in from the community. It's access, like it's accountability. Um, it shows the importance of our resources during like, it may not be seen as a drought, but when you have restrictions on travel or barges, um, yeah. you know, it was intense in March for like we hunkered down. A lot of people have been impacted economically um, severely. And so this come back to Hawaii being so isolated. Our inter-island freight has been cut by more than 50%. So my island, instead of getting two shipments a, a week, only gets one in my port. And so that means that we get half the amount of resources. Um, but that also means that there's also been a drop off in requests from businesses um, because there isn't tourism or as much tourism a big bunch of the food production or food transport was a big part of that for all the hotels. So yeah. there's been a refunneling of the uh -huh. restaurants, the bulk, the bulk buying initially was being um, portioned out for um, consumer consumption instead of bulk consumption, because there was so much resource um, left over from, or that needed to be refunneled from tourism use or non-use. So how have you been dealing with COVID on the personal and professional level? It's I'm pretty isolated um, personally. I work from home. I've been working from home since March um, doing my postdoc. So I've been just organizing online mostly. And it's been really a trip um, to how can you be supportive when you're virtual? Um, yeah. You know, like, how can you lend support to your people in, like, their dire time of need? Yeah. Um, people who don't have internet access, like, what do you do about that? So the mutual aid um, within our community is really important. So there have been, um, we have a site called Kukulu Switchboard, K-U-K-U-L-U -U -U Switchboard. And so someone set it up so people can ask for resources as well as provide resources and people that need them can reach out either wow. way. That's cool. So um, they've provided computer funding, job training, website services, like all kinds of stuff. So that was like a mutual aid that we could do digitally. And that was made by some local tech entrepreneurs. So that was really cool as like a community service. So, yeah, it sounds like there's been some technical mobilizing in the wake of COVID and some cool things have come from that. Yeah. So because of COVID, now we have like regular Hawaiian programming um, that's live streaming like weekly. <laughs> um, different highlights of parts of our community. Um, it's called Kanaeokana, K-A-N-A-E-O-K-A-N-A. Um, and they're on Facebook, so they have a repository of all of their presentations, and they're all, like, Hawaiian-based, like, um, program-based. Wow. So that's been really cool. Um, so really being able to fill in the gaps as a community or at least provide opportunities for education materials has been really cool to see. Um, yeah, that's all. that's all sounds Amazing. And I, I knew I knew that there's going to be some tricks up the Kanaka Mali sleeve when COVID was going to show up because your ability as a people to come together and do land based projects and community projects is really 
cool to see and really informed my process, really informed the work I do in my own territory. But it's also interesting to see how like in the Western world, there's always like this cheesy cliche of like the end times or end of the world, we're all going to die. But you're talking to how Kanako Maui came together and are filling in the gaps with really cool programming and really cool insights and awarenesses. Yeah. So I'm going to, um, my auntie, Auntie Kale, I don't know if you met her or you've, if you've met her, if you've like did some Hawaiian moon calendar stuff or had a speaker, that was probably her. Um, but she started going online in March. Um, she just wanted to do it for herself to like calm her own nerves about all of the COVID alarms going off. Mm-hmm. So she started doing traditional Hawaiian prayers or pule chants um, on Facebook Live. And so someone helped her out and they did a Zoom. And so I've been helping her out. So ever since like March, we've been meeting at nine o'clock every morning and doing Hawaiian prayers. And she's taught like we just released our 16th one today. So I built an app for it and we have um, meetings every day. We do five and people choose and it's just been like wild like today we had 97 people on live with us um between like facebook zoom and instagram so there's like a need for um community to meet virtually in like a hawaiian space so a hawaiian perspective like for support Mm -hmm. and so i'm just kind of there cruising just to support her with tech It's just been really amazing because her jam is to make traditional prayers and stuff relevant. So we've done a couple events around um, the solstice. And then we're doing one at the end of the month about Makahiki. And it's open to the community and online. So the participation has been like kind of wild. It's been like there's a need is basically what we're seeing. And so we're trying to figure out how we can provide more support for our community, uh, making it available when they need it. So the app kind of helps them out there. Um, There's like the chant in Hawaiian and English with audio. Um, and then we have some other features in there, but it's really simple. But I think that that's a really good model that maybe people in your community who's doing language revitalization would be interested in learning how to build for your community yeah. or somebody living somewhere else who has an indigenous language who wants to share their stories, you know. That's what I think is the most powerful part is that it's not just for Hawaiians or for Hawaii. It can be adapted to help people reconnect with their culture, mm-hmm. even in the diaspora. For sure. So utilizing that technology to to, to fulfill the goal of language revitalization. So because I'm helping with the tech, you know, it's like a producer part, basically. Mm-hmm. So I've worked with Auntie Kale for like a while, over 10 years. And so I've been, you know, she's been my teacher and has taught me these things. So when I'm going through them, I'm looking at it from like a producer's point of view. And so what I see is um, and what we hear as feedback is even especially from people from the diaspora is like this connection with culture and this access because um, normally chants and things like that are really, you know, you don't do that. You don't share that. Yeah. But her goal is to revitalize these practices as a, as a community. So I guess to support in that capacity has been really interesting during this time of COVID And it's been a really enlightening opportunity to provide that kind of support. So I created that app to help me because I've been learning chants or pule for at least 10 years longer than that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really hard to learn. If you're learning any language things and you're not a first language speaker, um, it's, you know, it's it's always a learning process. So. My dream was always to have an app that had the pule, the voice, and the translation so I could look it over. So it, I think it's just something that is a need that I had that, you know, other people maybe didn't know that they needed that to, to help them out. Yeah, that's really unique and cool to hear. 
And diaspora, a lot of people don't realize that there's there's a lot of Hawaiian, indigenous Hawaiians, Kanaka Maui, on the mainland, and they're all over, and even in some urban centers too. Yeah, so um, I think we have like 400,000 Hawaiians in Hawaii. I think that's what it is, but we have 500,000 Hawaiians outside of Hawaii. So I think it's like that right now because even my dad moved to Arizona in 2017 to retire. It's just like exorbitant to live here. It's like super expensive. Yeah, yeah it's super expensive. Yeah. Yeah, I can't even get into that. Shipping, isolation. If you live in a isolated community, you know what I'm talking about. A lot of our people, um, I haven't looked at the the back on back in on that but we do have a lot of people from california um we do have people from new york and arizona and all around the states Mm -hmm. but um i'm actually participating in the association of hawaiian civic clubs which is kind of um it was established by prince kuhio in the 1900s i think he just had like a hundred year anniversary but anyway so There are Native Hawaiians who have clubs all across the United States and in Hawaii, and we meet. And so people bring together resolutions. I was thinking about it, like, I don't know if it's the same thing as, like, we don't have tribes here. Like, it's Mm -hmm. not, like, we don't have that political structure. Like, I look at that as, like, a political structure. Like, we don't have that here as Hawaiians because of the, uh, the only thing that comes to mind is cultural obliteration, but I don't know how to make that sound nicer yeah um yeah i'm gonna go with that then um yeah the political structure that we had built was dismantled and so we're just trying to still figure that out as a people there is a structure that was put together by prince kuhio and so people from native hawaiians from all across the united states participate in that and it's a way for people not just native hawaiians like non-hawaiians can join those groups as well but in order to start a club you need to have native hawaiians um as the core membership that's unique that's really cool i know you said that like yeah there was there was aspects of colonization that were really harsh obviously like everywhere you go where there's indigenous people but you highlighted something unique in just how you're talking there and how you know prince kohio created this this structure like this outreach kind of program there's a lot of history your people have and and like even just this whole aspect of that i really recognize your people really achieving was being really flexible with the times and doing so that's really culturally relevant and even like this utilization of the app what comes to mind is i think me and you may have had conversations about samuel kamakau and and the work he was doing really early on with hawaiian newspapers right Yeah, and I think, um, so Kamakau recorded kind of like everything. Um, If you look at Samuel Kamakau, if you just Google him, you'll see the books that he's written. And so that's really where a lot of what um, Auntie Kale has done comes from, is just bringing voice to Kamakau. And Kamakau actually literally taking pen to paper and writing a lot of information down, and that existing in archives now today. Yeah. So Native Hawaiians are unique in identifying like one of the largest repositories of Hawaiian writings. And it was because when um, the missionaries came, they created Hawaiian language because it was an oratory language Um, and they created a written language. Mm -hmm. And so that written language was able to be pressed onto paper. And so to save the... Stories of that time, Kamakau and many other writers um, took to the written word and, you know, published voraciously. Um, And it is because of those newspapers um, and the research that not just um, that people have done to revitalize the newspapers and their importance. Um, We have a lot of resources to pull on and see on how life was and what people were doing and they codify or they recorded practices and so people are able to revisit and reawaken those words so it's kind of wild yeah it was totally wild i think we may have did a little reading on them in in one of our grad programs when we were there like our exchanges but yeah that like kamakao's really stuck out as somebody that you know influenced my work too and just in terms of how i write things and 
what I choose to write because it really did echo to today. And I think he was writing like in the early 1800s or mid 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in the first like half of this podcast, you gave a lot of people a lot to unpack because you're talking a lot about very culturally relevant stuff, but it's really unique because again, a lot of people only know what they see on Disney Moana and they don't realize that there's a very diverse, unique culture that is navigating a lot of the issues we're navigating and they're doing so on the fly. Like they're actually navigating, uh, you're navigating a lot of very real contemporary issues. But one thing that's unique about you that I really want to highlight is you also introduced me to this concept of, of front of the house and back of the house activism. Oh yeah, man. I'm still back of the house, man. Yeah. <laughs> so do you want to unpack that? Because because we, we live in a time where activism is needed, we, where it is also very popular. Uh, you know, a lot of young people will find their way to the front line for various reasons and, and be in that space. Um, however, there's a lot of logistical support that goes into creating those movements and those actions. Yeah. So, man, I haven't even thought about that for a long time. So obviously, if you're if you're listening to front of the house and back of the house, obviously, I've worked in a restaurant. So the front of the house is everybody that you see, everybody that's serving, everybody that greets you. It's like the people that you get to know. And the back of the house is everybody that makes it happen so that you can have that whole entire experience and not know that anything happened um, that may have gone awry. I consider myself a back of the house definitely just through actions. <laughs> um, and I'm not the one that, you know... I always defer the mic. I try not to be online. My face is usually never associated with something. That's just like for me. That's just like my jam because there's a lot of logistics that goes on um, to creating events, to creating awareness, to creating education that is accessible to people. And the things that like I'm going to go with education campaigns that I've run before time like like the last 10 years has been really on like the periphery of the normal day-to-day -day conversation. So like, how do you get through to people to a conversation that they've never heard before and have them engaged in it? It's really, that's what back of the house is. It's all of those logistics. It's about making sure everyone is comfortable in how things are set up and the timing and um, not just the people who are presenting, but the people who are coming um, and sharing their time and their space. And to just make sure that the people who are the front of the house and who are going to be on the camera and are going to be posting are comfortable with the message and uh, make sure that their voice is really what's being delivered um, and that you know, you're not changing the intent of the message, but to make sure that we can get across in a more concise way. So, yeah, man, that's kind of that's kind of what it is. I guess you wouldn't really consider this back of the house because I'm on a, like a podcast, but I'm kind of just talking story with Mylan. So <laughs> I'm excited to, you know, hear back about, um, you know, feedback and see how people see like how they feel comfortable in their activism and yeah. one isn't better than the other. They're both needed. And when you have a really good partnership, they're both valued and they both understand that like, I can't do what I do in the back of the house. If you don't do what you do in front of the house and vice versa. Yeah. So it's like a really good partnership. And some people do that wholly by themselves. And that is just amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it's not just event based, but building networks and supporting other people building networks is also part of that work, providing um, and supporting conversations and yeah. different kinds of writing, a lot of writing. Yeah, we were doing an action in Saskatoon last winter, last spring, um, and we were sort of helping facilitate some of the things that needed to happen. And and in a moment, I just drew on the our little whiteboard planning board there back of the house in front of the house and ask who's comfortable in those spaces and sort of unpacked what those spaces are in context to an action. And it worked really well. Everyone found a place and everyone found what they were comfortable doing and everyone recognized that in each other. So we were kind of conscious of what somebody else was bringing to the table and what their limits were and where their strengths were. So it was a really cool model that I wanted to highlight. 
Yeah, and that's and that's really important. And that's actually one of the first things when I start working with people. I'm like, what do you want to do? Like, what makes you happy? Like, you know, if we're on a project, what what would be the thing that would make you what do you think is your wheelhouse, number one? And then what in that wheelhouse do you actually want to do? And then I'm like, okay, cool. That sounds good. Like, this is what I want to do. And this is what I don't want to do. And they're like, oh, okay, I can do that part. So um, it makes also the the work more enjoyable, no matter what it is. And it also makes those boundaries clear. So you don't have to duplicate work. Yeah. There's no finger pointing, it seems. It removes that because you know where somebody's space is and what they're committed to and not committed to. And like, you know, if it falls by the wayside, like it's cool, just let me know. And then we can assess if like, that's something we really want, then like, we'll figure it out. And if not, then, you know, next time. Yeah, yeah. So you do have experience with activism and, and things like that, but just in general, there's a whole, there's political issues in Hawaii, obviously. Um, And a lot of that is tied to even history. And sometimes some people don't realize that Hawaii has a unique history in terms of not initially wanting to be a part of the U.S. And that there was an actual Hawaiian monarchy actively engaged in creating their own systems and their own autonomy. What is some of that history for somebody who's never heard it? Yeah, so um, Kamehameha brought together the Hawaiian Islands. Cook came in 1778, and then during that time, well, he died in 1779. <laughs> Sorry, I laughed. <laughs> so he was ultimately taken out, obviously, for you know being colonial. Um, but yeah, a lot to unpack there. Yeah, so Cook Cook was the the voyage that brought a lot of disease. Um, <laughs> so yeah. it started some of that disease collapse within our community. Um, and it also was a time when, you know, outsiders brought iron and guns. Things started to change along with the systems going along. Yeah. So Kamehameha basically unifying the islands and laying the groundwork for a unique system. Yeah. So I think, and people out there can Google me because again, dates aren't my jam, but I think Kamehameha organized the islands in 1810. And then he passed away in 1819. And by that time, he had um, united the islands, which had never been done. Hawaii um, was given over after the passing of, I believe, Kabuali'i. Um, so they passively came into the union. And then that started the um, transition over into, it created into a monarchy. So there are five different Kamehamehas. There's a short occupation by the British. Um, By that time, Hawaii had already created treaties internationally as the kingdom. And then there's the overthrow in 93, 1893. And then it went to the Republic. And then said annexation was passed through the United States Congress through the Newlands Resolution. And so that was used to claim annexation of the land. I feel like I'm like lecturing right now. So sorry about that. No worries. I mean, the the goal of having a conversation about this history is also for people to see that, that Hawaii is not a tourist destination, that there is a consciousness there. There is a history of struggle and resistance and, and wanting to position that. Yeah. You know, a lot of our community is now made up of, you know, we're very multi-ethnic, Hawaiian, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Filipino, um, Puerto Rican, Mexican. Many of those, all of those, except for Native Hawaiians, obviously were imported for sugarcane and pineapple fields. Um, you know, pineapple isn't native to Hawaii. It was brought in as agricultural crop. And a lot of those crops brought in actually just changed the whole land uh, structure and how things were functioning there. Yeah. So um, land in Hawaii was publicly um, in trust. And then the mahele happened, um, which privatized land and allowed for large sugar plantations and um, pineapple plantations to open up and get large um, pieces of land, which is still an issue today, even though sugarcane died like a while ago now. 
Um, so now those lands, um, which were, man, the whole pesticide thing is a whole nother jam. But now we're dealing with water rights issues um, coming from that. Yeah, and that's sort of just translating into like, I guess it's the historical wrongdoing of Hawaii becoming a state and basically being annexed by the U.S., which wasn't necessarily the goal for y'all. Skipped over a whole bunch there um, with Hawaii becoming a state. (laughs) And yeah, that vote, um, a lot of people didn't participate in that vote and how that vote was questioned is of question still. And ultimately that playing into the tourist industry. So laying the groundwork for the tourist industry also. Yeah, tourism was originally brought in, um, and I really should find this uh, reference because I did see it in the Hawaii State Archives, and someone's probably going to go in there and burn it now. But um, it's on the Republic record, I think, or at least on the legislature notes, that tourism was created to drown out the vote of Native Hawaiians. And um, they wanted to do it quickly so that people would be able to buy land and supersede the vote. So voting is very political inherently, but how voting is created also is very strategic. Um, So when you look at tourism and when I look at tourism and if I look at it from the lens of that perspective of that governing body, which was part of the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom and their goal and objective was to drown out the vote, they're doing an amazing job. They are very much exceeding Mm -hmm. probably the expectations they set for themselves and are generationally... um, successive in that endeavor subconsciously um, without people really knowing it. And I think that um, that has allowed me to look at tourism in a different light and policy and the importance of policy um, and the intentions of policy. And it's probably why I engage in those arenas on different levels. So yeah, I totally forgot about that, but that's one of the things um, a lot of people may not be aware of so yeah tourism actually increasing the population and marginalizing native hawaiians politically by basically outnumbering them and i'm not saying that that's other people's reasons why they have tourism but in my understanding in my personal research um you know i'll go look through my archives but i know i took a picture of that and um what was i looking for i was looking for I was doing land research at that time um, and I had to look through one of the logs and it just so happened. I also, when I do research, I flip. um, Yeah. So being in the archive and then you have a log and you're flipping through the pages, looking back and forth. Yeah. So why is that important to do? Because you're never going to go through those logs again. I just like to see what people were writing about back then. So we also have that amazing privilege in Hawaii, um, and people may not view it as so, but I do. Um, We have the Hawaii State Archives. And the thing that's really brilliant is, so we had this whole overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom, the Republic. I know I'm missing something in between there. And then there's territory times, and then there's state times now in like a governing timeline. Through that whole time, none of the government documents or all of the government documents have been housed in the Hawaii State Archives. So you can still access um, notes written by Queen Liliokalani or Kalakaua, um, who were our reigning monarchs um, during the kingdom era. There's historical things like banners and, you know, articles this was like a really interesting, this is going to blow your mind, Mylan. I don't think we've talked about this, but I had met with the um, head of the state archives. I forget his name. And he had this idea, and this is going to be really wild. So those guys that overthrew the kingdom looked at themselves as Hawaiians. Mm-hmm. And he was like, stay with me on this. He was like, um, that's what he said to me. I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, if they didn't see themselves as Hawaiians, then they would have burned everything from the kingdom era. Um, they did sell off the palace and a lot of the things that were in there, but they kept their ledger notes. Like they they kept the minutes, like they kept the public 
the policy record like from mm-hmm. the kingdom like they didn't torch that and like usually when you have like um overthrows and like well that's not the right word but like mm-hmm. you know like full on anarchy and like a flaming a culture um you would usually burn those notes um as like a tactic right like you want to burn the beliefs of people their knowledge base like their practices and that's what written things became right but we have the largest repository of hawaiian language newspapers we have all of our government documents going back to the kingdom era like this was just a realization early i had a conversation with the guy like in january earlier this year and so it's really been kind of like now I have to look through and like I'm mm-hmm. like it, it like rattles me right bro like it's like core action um but to think of these people who overthrew the kingdom that think about themselves as Hawaiian subjects and actually demonstrating that through not torching these mm-hmm. documents is like okay mm-hmm. then what's in these documents like if they didn't torch it they wanted us to find something so like what are we supposed to be looking for yeah, so to break that down, if you had like annexation and violent overthrow and just like you said, anarchy, there were people actively engaged in trying to preserve and maintain the political historical presence you have through those archives. Yeah, that's really unique. Are you looking at archives from that lens now? Like, are you doing that work right now to assess that? I'm not doing that, but I do have a friend who is doing that and he kind of goes through the archives. That's like his job now. And he's documenting everything and they're making it available online. So people can look through those documents digitally pretty soon. It's like one of their projects. Um, Sorry, that was like a whole different tangent. But like, isn't that wild? Like, isn't that a wild idea? It is. It is. Well, firstly, like for me, it's always a wild idea to think about like um, how the Hawaiian monarchy was actively, you know, doing their, their nationhood project to maintain who they are. But then to find out that, you know, you have these these archives and these resources that you could navigate to sort of structure and look at how you're going to exist politically is also really unique that I don't think, you know, my people in particular, yeah, we have treaties, we have sort of notes here and there, but, and we do have a writing system, but I mean, nothing that is as, as archived as what you're dealing with over there. So it is mind blowing in that, you know, People could collectively go look at their history and literally see notes written and literally see minutes from those eras and and navigate that. That's unique. And not only that, but like a lot of relatively cultural cosmological information's in there and a lot of international information where your people were actively engaged in diplomatic projects internationally. And we're talking over the span of like decades. It wasn't just like instant contact and colonization took place. No, there was an actual active political resistance taking place in Hawaii since since contacts and the engagement with European powers. It's amazing to see. Yeah. And the the wild, wild part is the idea that yeah. just came to me is like, what if we had relations with your people? Like, what if there's notes about that? Like, because they were talking to like a lot of people, a lot of heads of nations of different nations. And so um, in Polynesia, um, like, you know, Tahitians, Marcations, Samoans, Fijians, Maori, um, that's how that's like probably the I got it's like the coolest thing about being Hawaiian, man is that I get to engage with all of these like Polynesian ancestors who are alive, who have like these different puzzle pieces of our culture. Yeah. So also just you're speaking to Polynesia. So how there's a relationship with other Polynesians and there's cultural similarities there. Um, Can you give an example of some of those similarities? Because the Pacific Ocean is vast, but you all were navigating that and living in that space. And ultimately doing cultural exchanges because you're a kinship. How are those cultural exchanges still happening today? Because that's also very unique. Like, so we have things like, so the Maori started their te reo thing, their um, kohanga reo, their language nest. And so we were able to adapt that to Hawaii, which is now spreading other places. And so we have other practices like makahiki practices, which are going back down to and being shared with um, Maori in Aotearoa in New Zealand and I think that's like really the magic of like these cultural exchanges like this is what we're doing right now it's like really really cool 
that we get to learn. Yeah. I get to learn from you. And I'm like, oh, like, what if we did that? Like, what if we mm-hmm. have that? Like, where would that be if we had those resources? So I think that that's like really the magic of it all. Um, yeah, the magic being that we have autonomy to travel. We have autonomy to have these nation-to-nation relationships and these cultural exchanges. And yeah, what what would that lead up to? Like if we had that fully, what would that lead up to? The possibility of reawakening things that have been sleeping for so long um, and just resting. Yeah, totally. Just like the fact too, like looking at Kamakau's work and things that he's written and how it translated into like the modern era where Hawaiians are actively picking up again things that he wrote about. That was just mind baffling. Like that was mind boggling to me to see on the fly. Yeah. There's also like this concept that you've highlighted multiple times. And one is you're using academia as a tool to do all this work. Um and you do have, you know, multiple degrees. But how are you navigating that? Like, how are you navigating being a Hawaiian? Obviously, we talked about writing already. Like, how, you know, writing's not necessarily foreign or it's enforced because, you know, Kamakawa was utilizing that in the early 1800s as a tool. Um, but how are you doing your work and, and what's inspiring you to get that PhD and do the work that you're doing now? You know, it just kind of came. I can't say that because it does take work to do those things and you know, get those letters and things like that. But I really just tried to, first of all, I was part of a community and I'm just going to set it up like that. I was part of a community and I just so happened to come back home and um, became part of this community and started doing work by myself. And people heard about the water quality work I was doing in my undergrad and had asked me to help their community and it just worked out that when I moved on in my schooling, um, I had been working with that community for like four or five years, at least helping them with water quality and school things. Um, and so I asked them if it was OK, if I, you know, if they're interested in working with me for my master's mm-hmm. and like kind of highlighting that. So your work always being practical and essential to like community needs. I've always recognized that in you. Like I've always seen that that's a unique characteristic with the work you're doing. And a lot of Native Hawaiians, honestly, have these really cool practical projects. Um, yeah, it's really cool to see that. The thing about me is that I've, I've really kind of just been able to be me the whole time. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really curious. Um, and I'm trying to think of like how that translates to today. Like currently my job as a postdoc at um, the Kaka Foundation for Tropical Forests, which is amazing on its own. Their mission is to bring Native Hawaiians back into the forest, mm-hmm. which is my mission in life. Um, yeah. So you completed your PhD, but then you kind of got pulled into a cool project where now you could do your postdoc. So there's always like this sense of like being practical and relevant because you're actually doing the work anyway. So how did that happen? How did you get to the point of where you're now doing a postdoc? That's very relative to land. My recommendation for my PhD, which was about forest gathering practices, um, I did the first analysis of forest gathering permits for the state. Um, And then I also did market assessments and um, individual and online like structured surveys, looking at that kind of stuff. So one of the things was a community-based subsistence forest area. Um, And so I was actually asked to support a community-based subsistence forest area that they wanted to start um, by a community member. Um, and I was like, okay, so if they're asking, then I'm going to go. And I'd never met this person before. Like, So you were actively recruited to like do this postdoc in this cool project. How did they find you? Like, How did they get in touch with you and, and locate you in general? Um, they had seen my work. I had presented again at like a conference. And I, I saw them there and I was very nervous that they were there in the front row. <laughs> it's really cool how you were actively engaged by a community member. Uh, that's something I strive for is finding people who are doing really cool work for indigenous lands and indigenous people and actively recruiting them to do projects in our community or in our area. Um, what's one of the themes of your work? Like, what's the theme of this overall, if you were to sum it up? Um, so I guess I guess the theme is um, a lot of my stuff starts from volunteering 
And I know that everybody doesn't have that privilege, but there's different ways that I volunteer um, and throughout the years, obviously before it was physical, but now it's a lot of digital work, um, helping people get their message out and stuff like that. Um, but really using and being conscious about like, what do I want to do? A lot of people wanted me to be a professor and I did that, um, for, you know, grad school, um, you know, TA and I was like, this isn't my jam, man. Like, I just want to do research and like, I just want to work on, you know, pushing the policy boundaries, um, of forest gathering practices, because it's just such a critical area for native Hawaiian rights. Man, that's a whole nother thread. Yeah, just the fact that you said pushing policy boundaries is pretty radical. That's a whole nother thread. Um, But yeah, so obviously land claims, land back, that's still like an active thing here too Mm -hmm. with ceded lands and things like that. So just in general, like the theme being of service, being available to community. Yeah, I, I kind of thrive being of service and that may not be everybody's thing. But um, that's what fills my cup. I know that by looking at my calendar for the last three weeks I've been (laughs) tracking and a bunch of it is community work. Um, But it's where people are looking for Native Hawaiian voices and there aren't any. And I'm just like, I just got to do it. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the things like the reason I feel like we get along so good, too, is because we always keep our work practical and relevant and it's on the ground stuff. Yeah, it's um, there's it's always there's always a need like it's always seeing a problem or Mm -hmm. addressing a need. And there's no shortage of needs or problems in our communities. Yeah, I always say that there's no shortage of work. There's no shortage of projects that need to happen. Um, There's lots to do. And we just need people to be able to do those projects. Oh, yeah, man. Really trying to figure out templates on how we can, you know, not set it and forget it, but at least create some structure so things can be implemented other places um, and be of service um, and be low cost, low maintenance, but still high impact. I think that's really um, something that's important, especially um, what I've been talking about the past couple of days is community fatigue. And I don't know if this happens in your community, but there's uh, like cultural impact statements, um, consultations and like these different varying level community engagements that people want to hear from Native Hawaiians about rights and access and things like that. And so it's like a small amount of people that go every time. And so some people are passing away that we're usually the point person for that. Um, Other people get fatigued and it's really easy to get burnout if you don't figure out your balance um, whether you're doing it, um, whether you're able to do academic work through community or you're part of the community and, you know, you're starting your academic journey or you're interested or you just want to, like, engage, really understanding, like, what your energy is and what you're open to giving because mm-hmm. there's really never any end to the need. Um, but we can only so many hours, so many days And so really thinking about what kind of impact we want to make while we do this work. I try to keep my focus as like, this is where I want to make the impact is on forest gathering practices and getting our communities back on the land. Because currently that's a huge issue, um, especially now with some state parks being closed because of COVID, certain trails being open, um, another rabbit hole. Yeah. Well, you're doing amazing work in many areas like the social, political, environmental, political ecology stuff, which which I look at and, and how I try to position myself, too. And um, it's really inspiring for me because every time we talk story, I always take a lot away, like just for the fact for you to say, like pushing policy boundaries and uh, low cost, low maintenance, high impact projects. That stuff's all cool. It's going to inform me in my process. And I assume it's going to inform our listeners. And that's the reason why I wanted you on this podcast. Yeah, it's it's been even more important. I can't admit that I'm like really stretched thin right now, but everything that I'm doing, I'm not willing to negotiate out of my schedule. So mm-hmm. then that means like, where where am I going to give? Like, where where am I going to give that out? So I'm, you need to be like constantly assessing Mm -hmm. Um, that you're good. (laughs) 
like yeah i'm good because it's every day is different and every month is different and you know it's there's always flex i think that's something i'm trying to get more aware raise awareness about Mm -hmm. drinking my water like actually eating because i know when i get really into a project i just zone in and i'm just like we're gonna do this and then we do it and then i i go eat um so yeah self-care is important in this work man it's like really critical it is. And, and you're talking about eating. So in this podcast, we always mention food and we talked a lot of story around food, you and me. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of cool traditional foods there in Hawaii. Yeah, we're um, a lot of our traditional foods um, are like carbohydrates. So taro, uh, root, um, sweet potatoes, bananas. We have a, we're coming into citrus season now. And, um, you know, historically, people would preserve our bananas and drying and all of those things. I'm like, what is my like favorite thing, though? Yeah, I think I just want a dried banana now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember when we were hanging out a few times that you would always had like some sort of snack that was pretty close to a traditional food. Yeah, we also um, like growing up. Um, so like I'm Hawaiian, Chinese, Haole or Caucasian. And so Chinese, we eat like these. I probably gave you a lihi moi. Did I give you a lihi moi, the sour thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's the one. Yeah. So we have a lot of um, sundries in Hawaii, a lot of um, Chinese snacks that are dried, dried plum um, with like lihi moi. It's kind of like the snack. It's like little kids time. Um, so those are always fun. Those are good. Like I was going to say hurricane food, but yeah, totally <laughs> good hurricane food out here. Um, yeah. And then just in general too, it was always cool hanging out with you because we were always there on a budget. Like I've never been to Hawaii where I was not on a budget for work or for going there with school related stuff. And, uh, you always found a way to like navigate the affordable, good food. Oh yeah. Our food in Hawaii is pretty like accessible when yeah. it, you like, you know, when you come down to it. Um, we want to do grab stuff. Yeah. Being a grad student there, we always just kind of ate what we could get and grab. And, um, it was always like small little meals. Yeah. A lot of it is really fun. Um, probably give you guys bentos. And so the real interesting thing about our food is because of that plantation time, a lot of our food are, is influenced like that. So I think people might know about bentos nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Obviously, that comes from Japanese. So we have a lot of okazuya here uh, or a little Japanese bento place. You can go and pick whatever you want. And so it's kind of like a really big part, even like um, rice cakes or manapua from Chinatown. Yeah. Um, the mixing of the cultures with the food is kind of how we get along. I'll go with how, you know, I think sharing food might be just like a really universal idea. But um, it's been a really big way of how we communicate our history in Hawaii. Yeah, a lot of our history is in our food, which I imagine is kind of a, also a theme echoed around the world. Gotta go make, gotta go make some lunch after this. Yeah, well, you got access to it, and I don't. I gotta wait till COVID's done and and book a flight. Oh, fun! I know I'm on a different island, man. I live like um, I don't know, like ten minutes from the volcano. Or where the volcano was the center. So, Cool. Well, you gave us a lot to unpack in this podcast. You gave uh, uh, our listeners who aren't familiar with with Indigenous Hawaii and not familiar with, you know, the history, a lot of things to think about. We, we did talk around some things that they probably most likely will have to Google. Um, but, I mean, it's an informational podcast. It is radical narrative. We're trying to create um, stories of growth, you know, stories that inspire people to to think outside the box and and – and mobilize themselves and inform themselves. So, Yeah, thanks for having me, Mylan. It's good just to talk story and connect. Yeah, a lot. We, we had a lot of good, fun experiences together. We didn't mention much of it, like we were actually on Kahulave together and things like that. And yeah. Oh, yeah, man. There's a lot. Yeah, cool. Well, thanks for sitting with me. I appreciate your time. And uh, so if our listeners want to find you, where could they find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at Katie Bam. Um, K-T-E-A-B-A-M. Um, and that's kind of my handle um, across platforms. So Katie Bam is kind of where you find me. And then um, 
if people from different communities want to check out what we're doing with our app and um, want to see if we can collaborate so you guys can kind of do your own jam, I think that would be super amazing. And we're on Instagram at um, called Kanai Together, K-A-N-A-E-N-A-E Together, T-O-G-E-T-H-E-R. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, our link tree is there. So you can kind of see how we're reaching out to our community and maybe hopefully that's something that'll be helpful for you know, other communities to connect or reconnect. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. I'll link to that in the show notes so people could find it and they'll link to your social media. Cool. Yeah, you gave us a lot to think about and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, man. I'm excited. Um, I mean, I'm just excited to be here and share and talk story. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks. I appreciate it, Katie. We'll talk soon. And, and yeah, thank you. Okay, have a good day, Mylan. Aloha. Aloha. This episode was produced and mixed by Mylan Tatusis with additional production support by Daryl Lucero and Peyton Jackson. If you like what we do, please like, subscribe, and share. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Radical Narrative Podcast. If you wish to contact us, our website is www.radicalnarrative.com.